0: I say everything's gonna be alright. I say everything's gonna be alright. Everything's gonna be alright. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio iaq radio it's friday december 2nd 2016 this would be episode number 439 439 and my name is radio joe hughes coming to you live from studio d in central city pennsylvania at the controls is our engineer john you gotta have faith and joining me from back at studio c in mckee's rocks is the z-man cliff zlotnick
1: hi joe hi john hello everybody good,
0: good day cliff this week's guest is dr bill nazaroff calling in from uh, the university of california berkeley we're going to talk about indoor air quality and uh, indoor air quality exposure dynamics and uh, pollutant dynamics and buildings looking forward to a great interview today before we get started though we have to thank our marquee sponsors
2: John Don products where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, J O N D O N.com. That's John Don.com.
0: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
2: IEQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
0: And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question.
1: Thanks, Joe. by out-competing fellow I E Q Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the I E Q Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. <laughs> to John Lapotere, Indoor Air Quality Solutions, Orlando, Florida, for his fast and first correct answer to last week's IQ Radio trivia question. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, December 2nd, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IQ Radio trivia question. Name the graduate of the University of California at Berkeley who was elected to the National Academy of Engineering for his pioneering theoretical, experimental, and design contributions in the development of reentry systems for U.S. fleet ballistic missiles and who proposed the merger of aerospace firms resulting in the formation of Lockheed Martin. Back to you, Joe.
0: Tough one there, Cliff. All right, today's guest is Dr. William Bill Nazaroff. He is a Daniel Tellup Distinguished Professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and he also served as a faculty senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. His research centers on air quality engineering and emphasizes two themes, pollutant dynamics in indoor air and exposure science. His group pursues research through a combination of laboratory and field experiments, modeling, and data analysis. In recent years, in addition to maintaining the vigorous activities they pursued in the two primary areas, he has been uh, growing his concern about the interest in the themes of sustainability, climate change, and energy use efficiency. Let's see, Dr. Nazaroff had a physics degree back at the University of Berkeley, at University of California, Berkeley, Master's in Engineering at... Uh, the same institute. Uh, And then, of course, in 1989, looks like he had got his environmental and engineering science doctorate at the, uh, let's see, California Institute of Technology. So we've got some intro music for Dr. Nazaroff. I want to breathe pure clean air Not those toxic fumes No cigarette smoke or industrial smells, car exhausts—they choke me up. Okay, do we have you on the line, Doctor Nazarov? I'm here, Joe. Great to have, Good to have talk you. To you. Thanks for joining us. And uh, you know, I, I like always—I always like to go back to the beginning of uh, people's careers that have been in this industry for a long time, and, and try and figure out how you got involved in. In the indoor air quality world, um, you went to college back in the mid-70s, and, and I guess the uh, later 70s and early 80s as well, and, and, and throughout the 80s, but you started in physics, and um, you also have an electrical engineering degree, and and now you're doing indoor air quality. Tell us a little bit about how it got to that point.
3: Yeah, you know, um, when, when I was in college as an undergraduate, I didn't even know there was indoor air quality. Uh, it didn't. Uh, come up as a topic until I had applied for um, a part-time research assistantship or undergraduate study assistantship at at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, and I ended up with two interviews, uh, one of which was led by the late Dr. Craig Hollowell, who had founded this group in building ventilation and indoor air quality, and and they offered me the position. Uh, I went to work for them uh, about 1978 and was assigned to work on the the problem of uh, indoor radon and its relationship to energy efficiency programs and the goal of uh, reducing ventilation to save energy or or that that means in residential buildings. And uh, subsequently, there've been you know a few turning points in, in my career. But, but looking back, um, I've ended up deciding at those different junctures that uh, I was more interested and eager to continue working on this uh, indoor environmental quality theme than uh, the other options that appeared open at the time and you you know if you kind of uh, look at why or reflect on why that is.
0: um. Uh, You were talking a little bit about the building ventilation group and and, and indoor air quality at Lawrence Berkeley um, and then radon was another issue and that's something I really haven't got to talk to you much about. that was a big issue in the early days of indoor air quality, that along with environmental tobacco smoke. And and I see in the early days, and even again now, you've done a lot with radon. And I'm wondering, do you think maybe radon doesn't get the, um, I don't know, get the attention it deserves when it comes to indoor air quality issues? <laughs>
3: You know, I could say that uh, there isn't a single issue in indoor air quality that gets the attention that it deserves. I mean, maybe there's a few that are overblown, but generally it's an underappreciated but important theme. And that's certainly true for for radon. You know, I think in the scientific community, interest in uh, indoor radon has um, declined because the, the basic issue is pretty well understood Um, But that doesn't mean we're practicing what we know, uh, and it does remain a really important source of uh, radiation exposure, the biggest one for the public overall, um, and an important uh, health risk. And, you know, we know how to fix the problem, we know how to manage it, but it takes a commitment and resources and, you know, they're competing um, areas for our attention. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's not getting as much attention as it deserves, but not unique in that respect
0: and let's let's go back a little bit to the the two themes in in your work here pollutant dynamics in indoor air and exposure science um let's let's first kind of set the groundwork what what do you mean by pollutant dynamics of indoor air so
3: you know if you think about um the air that's in a building or more germanely i suppose the air that we inhale a key question that we'd like to know is what's the composition of that air? there's it It's going to be complex. We know that. Air is made up of many, many components. Some of them matter not at all. Some of them are uh, potentially harmful. And we're never going to be able to measure them all. So uh, in order to make progress in understanding this issue of what is it that we're breathing, um, my group studies the factors that influence the composition of that air. And that's what we refer to as pollutant dynamics. And so that's the the sources that emit pollutants, um, the ventilation systems that distribute them within buildings and, and lead to their removal, the interactions of pollutants with indoor surfaces, the chemistry that takes place in the air, uh, and so forth.
0: And what what type of, you know, What type of assumptions do you feel like people may have about the pollutant dynamics of indoor air that that maybe aren't quite what you're finding in your research?
3: Well, you you know, the big uh, issue I would say is that uh, it's really not on people's radar to a large extent at all. Uh, Even in the research community that, that I belong to that studies indoor environmental quality, Um, There's lots of different orientations and perspectives, and only a few of us who are really thinking about pollutant dynamics. Uh, I I think uh, overall a really big challenge for those of us who do think about it is to find that right balance between complexity and simplicity. Uh, I I love this quote from Albert Einstein, credited him anyway. He says, uh, make the thing as simple as possible, but not simpler. And the, um, you know a beautiful example of that is the ideal gas law, where you take something that's unbelievably complex, all these individual molecules bouncing off of each other. Uh, no way we could possibly understand that complex system. And yet we get this beautiful relationship, uh, PV equals NRT, that holds under all sorts of different conditions and has enormous power. And so that kind of uh, notion of how do you understand the system well enough to distill out of it its essence and to express the ideas uh, at an appropriately simple manner so you don't get lost in the complexity, but one that respects the true richness of the subject. That's the challenge. Hmm.
0: Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Yeah, Bill, I've got a follow-up
1: question, and and thank you for joining us. It it seems to me, and I I never thought about it until you just mentioned it a um, a moment ago, That from my perspective, it seems that there seems to be a disconnect uh, between researchers and indoor air. Uh, Some are concerned about uh, the gases uh, that are there, and it seems that those that are concerned about the gases really aren't concerned about the particulate or don't study the particulate. They're the group that studies the particulate and don't necessarily uh... study the gases and i'm just wondering whether you think there is a disconnect be- between this research
3: yeah cliff that's a a good point i, I might convey it uh, uh, or express it in a little different manner perhaps which is that there are lots of gaps in our uh... system and um... the, the one kind of set that i like to think about particularly are the gaps the, the two primary gaps one between what we know and what we practice so we've learned a lot, uh, scholars understand a lot, the research community understands a lot, and what we actually do um, in practice sometimes doesn't meet up to, to that, the, that understanding. And then, of course, there's another gap which is just as important, and that's the gap between what we um, would like to know and what's really important to know and what we actually do know. And, and that's sort of that research frontier um, where I focus a lot of my attention Uh, Another aspect maybe that gets closer to the question, the way you posed it, is to think about the uh, system that we're concerned about as having these three major subsystems or components. I like to speak of that as the three P's. The pollutants, this is my orientation because I'm a pollutant-centered person, Uh, the pollutants, the people, and the places, the places being the, the buildings. And each of us who works professionally in this space tends to be really good at some subcomponent of the space. And we do run the risk of, um, you know, working in the trenches that we've already dug or looking uh, under the lamppost where the the light is bright without recognizing there's a lot to be learned by extending the light into spaces that we haven't uh, explored yet. Thanks.
0: I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on how we can... Close that first gap you discussed between the research and the, and and the practice, what I, what I like to call you know practice to research, or research to practice. What are your thoughts on how we we close that gap a little more?
3: Well, you know I think uh, the the communication becomes central, right? And so then the question is how do you stimulate a, a, a communication and, and an exchange? Um, that addresses this space and you know I would say your your radio program is a great example uh, by the way congratulations I just noted that you've made it to ten years doing this that's uh, really remarkable thank you um, so uh, you know that's an that's a, a a way in which you're helping to bridge this uh, gap by bringing um, people in who uh, are often you know leading researchers to speak to um, sort of a theme that is centered on, on practice. Uh, the communication to be really effective needs to go both ways. We need to hear as well from, um, from practitioners about what is important. And you know, the challenge there is that many of the things that are important in being a professional practitioner are not items that the research community is really set up to address have to do with business practices or regulations and, and so forth. But still having some uh, enhanced dialogue in this space, I think, can can help advance our awareness. And that learning, um, if done well, is, is going to be a net positive.
0: You know, I guess there's a third leg to that stool as well, and that's the, the people providing the funding for the research. Um, how do you suggest we kind of get this in front of them a little bit more? that, that there is the, Do they know first of all that there is this gap? And, and are you aware of anything they're doing to try and help bridge the gap?
3: You know, the funding uh, space is um, in, in indoor environmental quality is small. Actually, it's extremely small from an environmental quality point of view. I, I One of the uh, communities that I have some interaction with is uh, atmospheric chemistry folks, people who deal with the, you know, global atmosphere, uh, urban and regional air pollution problems, and and a leader in that community who's recently got involved in indoor air research made a comment recently that the ratio of work being published on atmospheric chemistry compared to indoor environmental science is about a hundred to one. Wow. Um, so uh, the first issue is that we're just too small uh, relative to the sc- size of the problem and the size of the challenge. And, um, you know, that said, the, then we, we have sort of a, a, a broad theme in which um, the places where funding is deriving from tend to be small and fragmented, kind of the way that we address the built environment more generally, if you think of all the different government agencies that have some responsibility for what happens in buildings, and the, there's, there's a lack of any one agency that has central responsibility. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. All right, well, let's, let's go back to the pollutant dynamics of, of indoor air quality. I want to ask... You know, when I when I put this question together, I wasn't sure if it was a dumb question, and then I realized there are no dumb questions. So, I want to ask you about indoor air quality and and the pollutant dynamics of indoor air quality with respect to building type. Um, Does it change when it comes to building type?
3: Yeah. So, you know, here it's uh, there's two levels to look at the, the the response to this question. At one level, we can imagine ourselves down at the scale of a molecule a gas molecule or a particle and at that scale most of what's happening is just bouncing off of other molecules and those pollutants don't know whether they're in a commercial building or a residential building or in outdoor air uh, not to begin with so from that point of view um the building type doesn't sort of fundamentally matter the same physical principles apply whether we're in a residential building or a commercial building. But the system is complex. What controls, we, we, we can't analyze every dimension. What are the most important dimensions do vary from one situation to another. And then it is helpful to think about different, um, different classes of buildings and how the different classes of buildings have uh, somewhat different key issues associated with them. So one example is just to think about how ventilation is is achieved. Uh, the sort of standing, uh, if if we just look at the existing stock of buildings, uh, we're still in a situation in the U.S. where residences are primarily ventilated by infiltration plus natural ventilation through open windows, and uh, mechan- uh, commercial buildings are primarily ventilated mechanically, and those differences in the ventilation practice lead to quite different outcomes with respect to how one studies the system and the role of ventilation influencing the indoor pollutants and their dynamics
0: now prior to our, uh, our our interview today i had sent you some some thoughts on questions and and one was about the pollutant dynamics of indoor air quality and what you'd like to be sure all indoor environmental quality consultants and and even contractors understand about that and and you mentioned a a document here uh, the four principles for achieving good indoor air quality and and what we'll do is we'll have cliff put that in his blog but i wonder if you could go over those four principles for our listeners and maybe add a little you know expand on them a little bit
3: sure so the the, the challenge that uh i took on in this editorial was to ask the question um Yes, we're dealing with a complex system, but is there enough known to be able to express some key ideas succinctly in a way that, even if not true 100% of the time, would at least help guide practice uh, effectively? And so my trial set of uh, the four principles, which I tried to express in as few words as possible, and I got it down to 12 words, are these, Number, and they're in order, by the way, Um, of importance. Number one, minimize indoor emissions. Number two, keep it dry. Number three, ventilate well. And number four, protect against outdoor pollution. And uh, so, you know, if we go through these uh, sort of one by one, the the minimize indoor emissions issue um, is at the top of the list because most indoor air quality problems are a consequence of Sources that are um, too high, inappropriate for indoor spaces, and we need to take steps. The first uh, best solution to controlling indoor air quality uh, is to go after the the indoor sources. Uh, The best example of that in practice has been the management of environmental tobacco smoke exposure, in which, um, you know, in the space of my adult lifetime, the paradigm has completely flipped. When I was a young adult, it was uh, customary for people to smoke wherever they wanted to, and um, it, it was sort of the smokers' rights or, or perceived rights to, that dominated. And in the U.S. now, at least, it's, uh, the default is that people are not smoking indoors uh, pretty much anywhere, um, you know, with the exception of their own private residence. And even then, many people have household rules that have them smoke outdoors. That's a huge problem. Um, factor in reducing exposure to the byproducts of of cigarette smoke. Uh, With respect to keep it dry, um, we know that moisture and dampness is uh, associated with um, adverse respiratory outcomes, asthma, um, other kinds of uh, wheeze, other kinds of respiratory uh, disturbances. And we don't know precisely why, but it's... um, quite clear that, there's, uh, uh, that that moisture and dampness is a risk factor, and it's a pretty common one. And so uh, taking appropriate steps to correct, to prevent moisture intrusion, to keep uh, condensation from taking place indoors, to uh, correct problems if there's a, a leak or a, a, a water intrusion event, uh, that's really important. Uh, ventilate well, um, uh, you know, ventilation is uh, kind of the the next thing you have to do after you control indoor uh, emission sources. All the way back in um, the middle of the 19th century, uh, German, the, the father of public health or hygiene, uh, Max von Pettenkofer, taught us that um, after you uh, control the controllable sources and you're left behind with just, let's say, the bioeffluents from the people, Ventilate, ventilating uh, appropriately is the, the way to manage um, the, the indoor environment. And uh, we do run a risk now, and, and we have a, a considerable challenge in balancing the, the goal of making buildings energy efficient and um, providing them with appropriate ventilation to make them healthful. Uh, this is a big problem in schools, it's a uh, significant problem, and it, it appears now in sleeping environments, bedrooms in, in many residences. Uh, and then finally, protect against outdoor pollution. Lots of people, you know, globally, I mean, in the United States, we now enjoy pretty good outdoor air quality across the country. Uh, but globally, outdoor air pollution is a major issue in lots of urban environments. And just telling people to ventilate well when the outdoor uh, pollution levels are unacceptably high isn't is not um, a, a complete prescription. You know we have to have control measures to remove the pollutants from outdoor air um, before that air is supplied or or thought of as as appropriately fresh air.
0: You, know, you brought up something i'm I'm more recently very interested in that's the sleep environment and and the the type of environment we're in when we're trying to sleep and i I did some testing here at my own home, and I find that uh, the CO2 levels would get up to, you know, over 2,000 uh, ppm while we were sleeping. So, you know, I've been leaving the door open. Is that what you were talking about when you, you mentioned the, the sleep environment and we're learning more about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, you're exactly on point, and that observation is becoming more and more common. And, you know, I'd have to say that 10 years ago, I wouldn't have anticipated that that would be such a, a, a big issue. Um, but we've seen several studies now um, pointing to the fact that um, bedrooms are just often not ventilated well enough. People are sleeping in environments where the CO2 level gets well above a 1,000 ppm. Uh, we're beginning to see studies that are, uh, you know, we don't know at this point how much of an adverse consequence there might be associated with that exposure. Um you know, when people are sleeping, their odor perception isn't really kind of front and foremost, I wouldn't expect, um, but sleep is so important to our health and well-being overall. Um, there, there are questions about whether our, you know, ability to dream effectively or uh, all the other processing that takes place during sleep might be impaired by elevated CO2 levels or uh, elevated exposures to the other bio-effluents in our bedroom environment. And we're beginning to see studies now. There's a really nice one that came out from uh, Denmark about a year ago where they looked at um, next-day performance in relation to uh, CO2 exposure overnight during sleep and found um, some clear signals. It was a small study, but some clear signals that if you slept in a well-ventilated indoor space with uh, CO2 kept below 1,000 ppm, you had uh, better you felt better the next day and you had better performance
0: well that has been my my anecdotal experience and um you know I was wondering if there had been anything recently done on that that sounds like an interesting one i may have to try and get a copy of that um, we're real close to halftime let me get one more question in here i think we can do this before halftime and, and and if we go over a little it's not a big big deal i actually saw you and got a chance to talk to you a little bit at a uh, a conference in, in, in that EPA sponsored in um, in DC, and it was on exposure assessment. Well, it was on um, uh, particulate matter PM two point five, and um, I'm wondering if you could give listeners uh, kind of your key takeaway points from that particular conference that um, EPA sponsored, and uh, I believe Sloan was also part part of sponsoring. I believe you you pretty much ran the whole thing.
3: Well, so yeah, let me give a little bit of background before I summarize the um, main takeaways. The, um, this was a program that was sponsored by the EPA, but their sponsorship went to um, the National Academies, uh, it was the Institute of Medicine at the time. That that scholars and pr- practitioners. Uh, there were five of us who served on that committee, and. Uh, I chaired the committee. Our responsibility was to organize a two-day workshop that was uh, then held in Washington, D.C. in in this past February, and the topic, the theme, was health risks of indoor exposure to particulate matter. So we invited um, about 20 speakers to come to uh, make presentations, and um, the National Academies have done a great job in... Um, archiving the information so you can watch the video presentation still uh, online. They can be uh, viewed uh, for each of the, the speakers. There's uh, about a 100-page um, workshop summary that was written by a professional uh, writer that uh, describes in great detail um, the presentations and, and the messages in them. And then there's also uh, sort of a one-page infographic that can be downloaded um, that conveys the main messages, and I'll just highlight those now. Uh, so first, the particles that we breathe indoors um, do matter for, for public health. They are an important health risk factor. Uh, the ones that we are exposed to indoors come from both outdoor air and from indoor emission sources. Uh, if I had to put, you know, sort of rough numbers averaging across a lot of variable circumstances, I would say that those are about equally important. Um, The the indoor sources are pretty diverse, and they include things like pet dander, which uh, is allergenic for many people, um, cooking emissions, uh, candles, uh, and other um, unvented combustion like uh, incense. Uh, Cleaning activities can resuspend particles. uh, Surprisingly, even vacuum cleaning while you're vacuuming is a particle source. Cigarette smoking, of course, we've talked about. Desktop printers, both the laser printers and uh, now the new 3D printers can be sources of of particles. Uh, Mold, part of the way that it acts is through releasing particulate matter. And chemical reactions can also contribute. um, And and the key ones there involve uh, cleaning product components and air freshener components that might interact with ozone. The um, particles that we encounter indoors can vary quite widely in size, and so we should be thinking uh, of these not just as one category, but it helps to subdivide them into uh, the three we usually talk about are ultrafine particles, um, fine particles, and then coarse particles, and they have different behavior in the indoor environment, different control opportunities, different sources, so that kind of organization is helpful uh, in in. Making progress um, and then finally the, the major methods for controlling particle exposure are um, two that we've already talked about one is emissions control or source control and ventilation and then the third one that we haven't really mentioned yet is air filtration um, and uh, you know maybe I'll pause there because we're at, at mid uh, the, the halftime and uh, and then if you want to pick up on this uh, with follow-up questions that's great.
0: Let's do that. Um, and I've got a couple text texts, comments, and, and questions as well that we'll, we'll get to after we take our halftime break. We're going to stop for 90 seconds and thank our sponsors. We'll be back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Bill Nazaroff in just about a minute and a half. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association have been serving the needs
2: of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers.
0: Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
2: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com.
0: And Particles Plus, they are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com, count on us.
2: And of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, J-O-N-D-O-N.com, that's Johndon.com.
0: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
2: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
0: Okay, we're back with the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Bill Nazaroff on the line. I've got a couple quick text comments here. One on the HVAC systems and and poor return air because not enough. I guess uh, Brian's talking about mechanical contractors don't really concern themselves with source point pickup as long as there's no shortage overall. So I guess as long as they bring the the CO2 levels below like 1,000 or so overall and then... uh, also, I had another comment on the sleep issue that um, one of our listeners has been uh, talking about that for years, as a, as a pollutant for years, and that um, he's found that in his practice, over 1,000 PPM can cause sleeping problems as well. Now, now before we left, we were, we were talking a little bit about the, the PM 2.5 and health conference, and, you know, there were a couple things in that conference that really got my attention. One was how particles change when they come from inside or from outside to inside, and um, I know you've you've done some work with uh, Dr. Weschler and and uh, talked a little bit about how these particles change. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit?
3: Sure. Well, y- you know there uh, there are several dimensions um, uh, of this. One is that if you just treat the particles as uh, or think of particles as inert. Um, that is, you know, not reacting chemically or not interacting dynamically at the level of each individual particle. And don't think about indoor sources for a moment and just say, okay, we've got particles in outdoor air. We've got ventilation. You know, if you think about a residence, maybe an open window or just air infiltration. Uh, If you think about a mechanically ventilated commercial building, uh, the ventilation is bringing that particle-laden air from outdoors and bringing it into the indoor environment. And then we can ask the question, well, what are people really inhaling compared to what was in the outdoor air that we might be monitoring and, and uh, we have regulatory protection for? Uh, and, and so there, there would already be some transformations on that basis, and they tend to be then the size-selective behaviors. So if it's a mechanically ventilated building with a moderate-quality uh, filter in the, the um, supply system, then uh, we're going to take out quite effectively the smallest particles and the largest particles, and the intermediate-sized particles in the fine mode will penetrate and and be present indoors at levels that are pretty comparable to the values uh, outdoors. If we're in a um, and and then once the particles are in the indoor environment, we have deposition processes that remove them by uh, attachment to various surfaces indoors. And those tend to be fastest for the biggest particles and, again, for the smallest particles and slowest for intermediate or fine-mode particles. So what we end up with in indoor air is, um, if there are no indoor sources, uh, some moderate protection from outdoor coarse particles and from outdoor ultrafine particles and rather poor protection in ordinary building from outdoor fine particles. Those are the ones that you would see contributing to hazy conditions. On top of this is uh, some real richness to particular chemical components and how those may behave as you go from outdoors to indoors. Just to pick up one example, one of the important chemical components in outdoor particulate matter, it's especially important here in California, is ammonium nitrate, and uh, it's formed from nitric, Acid combining with uh, ammonia, um, and we have uh, it might make up 10, 20, 30 percent of, of the fine particle mass. It, when it makes uh, particles, it's not um, permanently in the particle phase, uh, and the extent to which it stays in the particle phase depends upon temperature. So, when conditions are warmer, the species evaporate and go from particles back into the gas phase. When conditions are cooler, They tend to go from the gas phase uh, toward the particle phase. So we can end up with conditions here in California, for example, where in the wintertime the ammonium nitrate particles outdoors come indoors and they evaporate because it's warmer indoors and you get some suppression of exposure because of that. Uh, But then in the summertime when we have uh, air conditioning practiced indoors, Um, the cooler indoor conditions can actually lead to an enhancement of ammonium nitrate levels compared to their value outdoors. Hmm.
0: And the other thing you mentioned at the end of the conversation on the PM 2.5 and health conference was filtration. And I've been seeing more discussion about, you know, the the balance between filtration and ventilation and, and especially when we get into areas like even, you know, Pittsburgh area has got some really bad outdoor air. Um, And then, uh, you know, we, we can send people into space with reasonably good air without ventilation. Is is there a, a, a tug of war there in your mind, or is it that we just need both and um, we should just, you know, accept that?
3: Well, you know, the, the, the standard technologies for filtration that are most widely available are good against particles and don't do much for gases. So ventilation is going to be necessary in the foreseeable future because we don't have inexpensive, gaseous pollutant control technologies. Um, The ventilation, though, can be augmented and we can have a net um, beneficial outcome by wise application of our good particle filtering technologies. And, uh, you know, I would, I, my, my impression overall, I've done the most work on this question actually in Singapore, um, where I've been involved in a project for the last, a large program for the last five years of, of some research there, um, and although they have well-designed and very well-maintained mechanically ventilated um, commercial buildings with uh, almost universal air conditioning because it's so warm and humid, the... Filtration practice um, is warranted in what we've been investigating to to go to a higher rating, you know, increase the MERV rating from 8, which might be the standard practice, to 12 or to 14, and that would lead to public health benefits that are cost-effective overall. Uh, Who who pays and who benefits is still, you know, a, a, a challenge, but I think the balance is that, doing a better job with filtration in mechanically ventilated buildings for the purpose of improving public health is, is actually supported and justifiable from a cost-benefit perspective.
0: Let me, I want to go to another kind of recent issue here, and I, I want to get your thoughts on uh, how has the study of the microbiome affected your thoughts on, on the pollutant dynamics of indoor air?
3: Yeah, you know, it's, uh, uh, let me admit something, maybe I shouldn't admit, I had zero biology when I was in college, <laughs> so the whole thought of doing anything about microbiology in indoor environments never kind of rose on my radar screen until the new kind of efforts related to the, the microbiome, and in everything that I've been involved in, you know, when we're really talking about microbiological dimensions, I always have a partner who knows something, who really knows something about microbiology. So my knowledge is as a, a um, you know, a pollutant dynamicist from a physical science perspective. And so I can understand some important things about bioaerosols, for example, but down in the, you know, the details of, I, I know the difference between a fungus and a, a bacterium now too, but uh, down in the details of uh, microbial ecology, I'm I, got to be very careful. But uh, with that said, the um, you know, the microbiome theme has emerged really because of inexpensive DNA-based um, measurement technologies. Uh, one can think about the the human microbiome project as sort of the, the, the I don't know, watershed uh, or poster child for the much bigger set of studies that are now being done. And Uh, you know, I'd I'd say it's not uh, an exaggeration to suggest that in many subjects related to biology and especially to those aspects concerning microbes, um, there's really been a revolutionary shift, and and we're in the middle of that revolution. We can't quite see where it will end up. Um, One of the kind of aspects that you know, maybe was known before but wasn't widely known before is that the, if you look at the human organism, um, we actually have more cells that are microbial that, associated with us than the number of human cells. Uh, I think the number is something like 10 to 1. Um, and it's mainly the bacteria that are in our gut. But we now know that bacteria colonize every um, kind of exposed Corner every external surface of the human uh, body, and it's not just bacteria but a bunch of other things as well. We're also beginning to learn that these um, microbes that are part of us are really important for uh, our health and well being in ways that we don't yet fully understand, but we're getting more and more uh, information as we go forward. Now we live in indoor environments, there's Microbes living in our indoor space are microbes that are just kind of hanging out. Um, We're still not fully cognizant if you don't have a moisture problem how much microbial life there is in the indoor environment. But it's beginning to seem clear that um, at least there's a reason to expect that the character of our indoor environment might influence our human microbiomes. Uh, the human microbiology, and if so, then there might be consequences with respect to uh, human health, and if so, it might be that we can design um, and operate our buildings in a way that is more health-promoting with respect to maintaining healthier human microbiomes than what we currently do. Now, I, I, I have to caution that all these things are kind of Where it seems to me that the arrow is pointing based on what we know now, but it's an extrapolation. A lot of the stuff we just don't know enough about yet to be uh, confident in. We certainly don't know enough yet to say, okay, here's a prescription for how you should design and operate your home for healthy human microbiology. But it's a fascinating area.
0: You know, you, you, you do a lot on exposure assessment. And uh, by the way, Cliff, is there anything you want to jump in on here? No,
2: I'm good, Joe.
0: Okay. Um, on exposure assessment, a lot of our listeners and, and the, the people we work with perform the widespread cleanup of water damage and sewage and mold and, um, you know, asbestos and lead and all these things. I think we're pretty good at characterizing the exposure when it comes to things like asbestos and lead but i haven't seen much with respect to characterizing exposure for people doing this water damage restoration or even mold remediation i wonder if you have any thoughts on that or if you're aware of any research that maybe we should be aware of
3: you know i don't see um a large amount of published research on the remedial activities and it may be because the community, that, that there's sort of an industrial hygiene community that exists for longer than the indoor air quality community per se, and um, I'm not as tightly anchored or, or engaged with that community as, as with some others. Uh, I do, you know, it seems quite clear to me that the um, proper personal protection it's you know its design, its, uh, it's effective use um, is really critical for any of these kind of remediation activities. The the the, the workers um, need to be protected. The the um, appropriate isolation uh, measures need to be taken so there's not incidental exposure to people who are. Uh, living next door or working, you know, down the hall or on another floor from an area that's being remediated. Um, And uh, all of the things that you mentioned certainly have the potential to contribute to high health risks, unacceptably high health risks if they're not well managed.
0: You know, i <clears throat> Excuse me, I had asked ask a, a question on, on hydroxyl generators. A lot of our people were being you know, sold on using these hydroxyl generators. I wonder if you have any comments on that technology. I know it's not something that gets a lot of research. Uh, I don't know if you've done any on it, but um, any comments on, on those types of technologies, whether it's ozone or hydroxyl used to remediate indoor environments?
3: Yeah, so let me... Um Make a distinction here between remediation and routine maintenance and and, and cleaning. And in in the remediation space, um, I I would say that I, I I'm cautious about uh, and maybe potentially concerned about the application of these technologies, but that we just don't know enough. Um, but in the the other domain, the kind of routine operations, so you can, you know, go uh, look for uh, air cleaning technologies and you find marketed uh, online things that advertise that they generate ozone or they generate um, a hydroxyl radical and, and, you know, that that should be good for your indoor environmental quality. And uh, to me, the evidence is pretty clear that that's um, a bad idea, that oxidative chemistry is indiscriminate it does some things that are good but it also does lots of things that are bad and one cannot practically control in uh, an indoor environment the oxidative chemistry by just adding the oxidizers the hydroxyl radical or ozone to indoor air in such a way that only good things happen or even the good things dominate uh, we have studied uh, a lot the interactions of ozone with um indoor environmental materials, including with the human envelope, and um, the the reactions that happen on surfaces uh, lead to ozone disappearing, which is a good thing, but um, invariably are producing byproducts, some of which get back out into the air, that we know to be health harmful, uh, including aldehydes and organic acids, and... Um, the the overall um, direction, you know, if you sum up the effects, the overall uh, outcome looks more negative than positive.
0: And and kind of going along the same lines of these pollutant surface interactions, one would be the oxidative reactions, and, and there's a couple others I want you to mention for listeners, if you would.
3: Sure. So, um We've just talked about the oxidative processes that can happen on surfaces, and um, two other kinds of processes that are really uh, important in governing what goes on in indoor spaces are sorptive interactions and and then the deposition and, and resuspension of particles. And let me say a little bit about each of those. So for sorptive interactions, what we're talking about is molecules that are in the Gas phase, individual molecules in the air, but are are sticky for some reason. And they might be sticky because they like to, they have a high molecular weight, or they might have a um, a, a functional group on them, a a cluster on them that makes them want to be associated with surfaces more so than be in the gas phase. Uh, Lots of these that we're concerned about now are in the category of semi volatile organic compounds. They include uh, phthalates, uh, which are used as plasticizers and in many other products. They include many pesticides. They include flame retardants. Um, And so what happens is that when these are in the air and the concentration in the air is high, the molecules will um, migrate to surfaces and stick to those surfaces. That temporarily lowers the concentration in the air that you might be inhaling but then later, when, let's say, the, the source is removed, ventilation takes the remaining chemicals out of the gas phase, these molecules that have stuck to the surface can come back off and contribute to a delayed exposure. The best example of this that would be in sort of people's everyday experiences is the tobacco, the persistence of tobacco smoke odors. If you've gone to a place where people had been smoking and, um, you know, you smell your clothes uh, hours later, and you can still smell the residue of uh, tobacco smoke. That's an example of absorptive interaction: those odorous molecules sticking to the clothing fibers and then later coming off. Uh, in in the case of deposition and resuspension of particles, the um, we have things like allergens, uh, mold spore release from a, a moldy uh, material, or there may be dander from uh, a dog that you know has some allergenic properties. And those particles are in the coarse mode. They settle fairly rapidly from the air. They might only remain suspended for uh, minutes. Uh, the, the release into the indoor air may not lead to them being removed by ventilation, but rather by settling down onto a, a surface that, like a tabletop or the floor that we later c- can come into contact with. When we come into contact with that surface, we may may resuspend the particle and then have another chance to inhale it. And so when one is dealing with coarse particles and or air, ventilation turns out to be a much less effective mitigation strategy just because there's opportunity for those particles to settle and and exposure to occur again later, no matter what the ventilation rate is.
0: Cliff, you got a follow-up on that one? I, I do, uh,
1: Bill. Um, one of the things I, I've had good success doing in the past, you know, you talked about uh, this absorption, and from an odor removal uh, practitioner, uh, we we get called in. You know, to, there, there might be a vehicle that the former owner you you know wore a lot of fragrance or whatever, and now there's you know they can't sell the vehicle because you know, the new buyer, you know, can't handle it. And and one of the things we've seemingly been successful in doing was going through a process of desorption, which, um, you know, we actually w- would get airflow, uh, laminar flow crossing the surface. We would hit the surface with uh, chemicals that would evaporate quickly, uh, you know, isopropyl alcohol or ethyl alcohol or, or something like that, and, and we found some pretty dramatic uh, reduction uh, of odor, uh, you know, residual odor on that on those surfaces. And then found that if we tented the surface and used activated carbon or a molecular sieve or, or something like that, that we were able to reduce the levels get uh, to where the the vehicle would then be satisfactory and. I was just wondering whether you know of any research that's uh you know been done on this or have any experience doing it because uh yeah, I'd certainly like to know more about why it works.
3: Yeah, well you, you know it I mean what you're describing um in the main fits with with my kind of general understanding, but the general understanding is probably not sufficient to kind of give a prescription that is gonna be much better than trial and error practice right now I have not seen uh, research that specifically um, addresses the you know the point that, that you've raised I can appreciate that um, you know in an environment like a, a car where a fragrance would be one but the other would have been a smoker right, right. who habitually smoked cigarettes in a car and now the used car uh, isn't moving off the lot um, and and how do you deal with that issue and uh, that's where this case of, you know, maybe oxidative chemistry is not such a bad idea for that specific example, but one would want to be very careful to have a kind of a, a, a long post-treatment process with good ventilation and maybe even some uh, warming of the interior to help speed the desorption process. And that would be the one thing that I would add, that you, you can help um, Nudge the molecules off the surface by warming um, and and so if you do that after the treatment and before the vehicle is is put back on the showroom floor, um, you know maybe that's that's the right combination but that that's in sort of anecdotal advice based on best judgment, not uh, backed up by really solid quantitative research
1: right well one of the challenges with the oxidative stuff, particularly the ozone is there Certain rubbers in, in vehicles that are vulnerable, and yeah. sometimes you're not sure exactly where they're at. And you know, personally, I, I've had experience uh, using it, and uh, or experience in situations you know where it's been used, and you know, created you know new odors and aldehydes. no one knows what the vehicle was cleaned with. You know, if someone used a pine-based cleaning product or you know, uh, a citru- uh, citrus soil-based cleaning product in there, you know, some crazy stuff can happen.
3: Yeah, well, and that, then that sort of suggests maybe this this uh, heating strategy, you know, you run the... I, I don't know how well this would work, but if you um, ran the, the car with an interior... Uh, with ventilation and with an interior um, temperature that was elevated maybe you can help speed the the desorption process that idea of bake out um, there is some literature on for buildings uh, with the idea that you know maybe a new building before it's occupied could go through a bake out procedure to reduce uh, the initial voc exposure and it's not proved particularly effective in that context um, but you know that doesn't mean it wouldn't be Uh, reasonable to consider it in this other setting where you have a surface-applied chemical that you're trying to drive off. Um, The the, the one other uh, treatment technology that hasn't come up in this conversation but probably is worth mentioning is uh, vaporized hydrogen peroxide. Um, I don't know whether it's practical in small scale, but it's certainly gotten a lot of attention in aircraft um, decontamination processes.
0: Um, you know, I wanted to check real quick. We're running a little uh, little over, but can you stick around another five, ten minutes? Sure. All right, great. I've got two more, I think, really good questions. We'll go to what we call a roundup, um, and uh, this is where Cliff and I ask a few final questions. John? Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw, high. Cut him! okay i've got one here that it's on a paper i noticed in your cv um by by charlie weschler and yourself and it was called the dermal uptake of organic vapors commonly found in indoor air and um i I wanted to you know in in response you sent me you said this was kind of a, a paradigm shift for exposure science and i'm wondering if you could Talk a little bit about that and maybe in the context of people providing cleaning services or, you know, whatever you think uh, to give it kind of a, uh, you know, a real-world tie-in.
2: Sure.
3: So um, let me begin by saying a little bit about the context, the exposure science context. When we think about environmental exposures to chemicals, the three main routes of uh, attention always are inhalation, uh, ingestion, and dermal uptake. And, uh, you know, up until we had been involved in this work recently, the dermal uptake pathway, when assessed, in most cases, not in every case, but in most cases, required, um, or, or the way that the assessor did it, was to think about a person touching a surface that had some contaminant on it, transfer the contaminant to the hand, and then maybe transdermal, permeation getting into the body and what uh, our work has uh, now shown and there's some subsequent experimental work that helps solidify this is that there's another pathway that we really need to be thinking about for some chemicals and that is um, chemicals in the indoor environment it gets into the indoor air and it's directly transferred from the indoor air to our skin and then it passes through the skin into our body that pathway can be stronger uh, for some chemicals than the inhalation pathway. The inhalation pathway is limited to the amount of air that we inhale, which is just about a, a 500 liters per hour uh, on average. The amount of air that passes over our skin from which we could capture uh, pollutants if our skin's not a good barrier is um, 10 or 20 times that. And uh, so, part of how we got involved in this was thinking about um, compounds like nicotine for which there is, uh, you know, this uh, patch to help people um, quit their uh, tobacco smoking habit. And um, the patch works based on the same principle. You know, you put nicotine in a patch and you put the patch on your skin and you've got transdermal permeation taking place. And we began to say, you know, maybe the, there's uh, not just nicotine, but some other chemicals that we ought to be concerned with that have the same kind of transdermal uptake property. And so one, one of the um, validations that's taken place recently involved looking at phthalates, this class of chemicals that I mentioned earlier um, that appear in, uh, to make plastics flexible um, but they appear in many other things as well. So they're found in cosmetics. The concentrations of phthalates in indoor air can be quite high. And some direct experiments have been done now in, uh, in Denmark in which the subjects wore a breathing hood that allowed them to not have any inhalation exposure to the um, phthalate. Uh, but they uh, actually they did these experiments in their underwear. Um, they were exposed in a chamber to the concentrations in of the phthalate in the air and then they measured the phthalate excreted in their urine and they found that um, with the hood on with no inhalation exposure they got about half as much uh, overall uptake as they got with the hoods off um, indicating that the transdermal uh, uptake for these chemicals was as big as the inhalation uptake.
0: Hmm. And Cliff did you have another one if, if you don't I've got one more.
1: Oh, go ahead,
0: Joe. Okay. Um, one of the other, you know, uh, areas that you're looking at is is the role of personal care products and influencing indoor air quality. And I wonder if you could just give listeners a little overview of what your thoughts are with respect to that topic and, and why you feel it's uh, maybe an emerging or important topic.
2: Sure. So,
3: you know, we got involved in this um, kind of, it, it, let me give a little bit of history that the, the bigger history. I mentioned Max von Pettenkoffer. He worked in the second half of the um, 19th century on uh, indoor air. He's one of the pioneers in in the field. He worked on many other things as well, but he was the one who first taught us that CO2 levels of about 1,000 ppm separated good air from bad air, and that um, the CO2, he suggested, was just a marker for other kinds of bio that people would find unpleasant or objectionable if they got uh, too high. And then um, uh, uh, a fellow named, uh, by the name of Yaglu um, did some very careful experiments at Harvard in the first half of the 20th century to determine ventilation rates, uh, and um, again, CO2 was used as the indicator, but people were suggesting at that time and still tend to believe that it wasn't the CO2 itself that was the problem, but it was the other things being emitted by people. Maybe fast forward to you know year 2000, year 2010, and we have all kinds of tools for studying indoor chemistry, and we studied all sorts of indoor pollutant sources, and yet our understanding of the human as a source of indoor pollution itself had not advanced very much beyond this It's very early history. We emit CO2. We know a lot about the rate of emissions and the factors that control it. We emit some other stuff, but we don't know what that other stuff is. Not very well. So um, I got involved in a a project with a collaborator here at Berkeley who's an outstanding atmospheric analytical chemist in which the goal was to measure the chemical composition and rates of emission of what comes off of humans. And we picked a classroom, actually, in the building that, that I work in, uh, engineering classroom, simple ventilation system, single pass, um, no, uh, no um, infiltration or negligible infiltration, and we monitored in real time the organic chemical composition of the air. We sampled from the ventilation supply air and from the room air, alternating every five minutes. We sampled when the room was vacant, and we also sampled when the room had normal engineering lecture classes. And, uh, and then we extracted from all of these data the um, emission factors, mass emitted per unit time per student of a whole suite of, of chemical compounds. The, the, the most striking finding out of this was that the apart from the fact that the occupants were the predominant overall source, much more important than the building furnishings, much more important than outdoor air supplied by ventilation. Apart from that, the chemical that contributed the most, a third of the total, was uh, out of a category called methylsiloxanes, and we were scratching our head trying to figure out where these things were coming from. It turns out that they are a major ingredient in a bunch of personal care products, including antiperspirants, and they are um, used in those products to give the, the product a silky feel. They have a kind of a semi-volatile characteristic. Like a low vapor pressure. When you spread them on, they feel smooth, and then they don't leave a sticky residue because they slowly evaporate. And we found that these chemicals were emitted higher in the morning than later in the afternoon, which helped clue us into that it might be uh, something that was associated with a personal care product. This category of, of methyl siloxanes, they have many different um, sort of popular names, is a, an emerging area of interest in general in environmental quality because it's showing up these chemicals are showing up in lots of different places, um, but it's an, also an example of a broader class of of interest, which is you know what's coming from the people and what are the factors that influence those emissions and what are the consequences for indoor environmental quality.
0: Very interesting. And and real quick, I had a follow up question on the um, uh, the phthalate experiment. The question was, um, how did they rule out ingestion of those?
3: Uh, those chemicals, yeah. Yes. So so the people who um, were involved in this study had to go on a phthalate-free uh, diet, if you will, for a while, and then they um, were able to show by the amount of the phthalates that were in their urine before the experiment that, they're, um, that they had a low background. Hmm. And then uh, they began the experiment, and they could see a clear relationship um, and what was excreted in relation to what they were being exposed to in the chamber. but it's a great question.
0: It's a, you know it's been a a great interview too, and uh, we really appreciate you joining us and, and I want to thank dr. Nazaroff uh, great to great to finally get you on the show here and I, I hope we can get you back again. well
3: thanks for the the opportunity to um, explore some of these issues it's, it's a, a great subject area area, and I appreciate the service that you uh, are offering to the broader community through your program
0: thank you and this is radio joe hughes saying thanks to this week's guest dr bill nazaroff of course to our engineer john you gotta have faith to my co-host the z-man cliff Zlotnick, and most importantly to our growing group of loyal listeners. Hey, Brian, hope you're feeling good out there, buddy. also want to shout out to Brian. We're trying to get him on here before the end of the year. We'll see how that goes. Brian Baker. And uh, everyone else that joined us today, thanks so much for joining us. We uh, look forward to being back here next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio. <laughs>